ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 26. We are very near to the end of the book of Matthew, very near to the end of our sermon series on Matthew. Next week is the cross and the resurrection. But before we get there, we've got a lot to go through. We're going to be looking at Jesus on trial this morning. And I want you to think, if, if you've ever worked with kids at all, especially in a teaching setting or maybe as a parent, hopefully you know that, that moment of joy when you see that child just get something that you're trying to teach them. And, and just like their eyes light up, and as a teacher you have this really proud moment of, I have taught this child something. It's a great feeling. But you probably also know the other feeling. Where you're trying to teach the child something, and maybe it's a two or three year old, and they're like, I already know that. No, I'll do it my way. I, I remember those times. My kids are a little bit older now. And, and I never knew the frustration that could arise within my own soul of looking at this small human who's only been alive for like a blink of the eye and he or she is telling me how the world operates and what they should be doing and what I should be doing and how what I'm doing is wrong. And I'm thinking, I have a good 30 years on you. I know something and you don't. (laughs) Please just do it this way. No, no. My way. I know better. You know, as we grow older, we learn more, and that's good. My kids, some of them are now teenagers, starting to figure things out on their own. They have their own opinions, their own ideas. They're smart kids. They've learned a lot. And so, you know, there are times now when they'll say, no, I want to do it this way, and I have to catch myself like, okay, I am still, you know, a good 30 years older than them, but they know some things too, and so there's that time to maybe give in. Then there's the other times of like, yeah, you don't know this. And and they struggle with that. I think as we get older, we struggle with other people as they try to tell us things, and we sit there and we judge. Well, does, does this person really know me? Do they know my situation? And sometimes they don't. We have to be wise about that. But I want you to think for a moment what it's like when we turn that mentality toward God. We hear something from the Word of God, or we sit in church, we learn something, or or we just know something, and, and we think, hmm, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I don't know if I agree with God on this one. I think I'm going to do it my way. Now, now think of the agony of a parent with a two-year-old and saying, I've got a good 30 years on you. How dare you think this way? The difference between us and the Lord is a million times. It's infinitely greater. And I remember thinking when my two-year-old did this, God, is this how I act toward you? And I'm not saying I heard an audible voice or anything, but it was very clearly like, "Uh uh-huh, all the time. We sit in judgment on God, his ways, On Jesus, what he did, what he should have done, how he should have done it, what he should be doing now, what he shouldn't be doing now, the way the world should operate, the way we think everything should go. We're looking at the trial of Jesus, along with some other things this morning, a lot of other things. 
But I want us, as we walk through this passage, I want you to think about how are these people, these individuals, you're going to see several of them, what are they judging about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and how do we still do the same thing today? And before we get into the passage today, I want to remind us who Jesus Christ truly is, because you're going to see Jesus arrested put on trial, treated poorly, lies are going to be spoken against him. And I want us, as you go through that, I want you to have in your head who Jesus Christ truly is, just in case you've forgotten. Matthew has introduced us at the very beginning, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king. Later on, he talks about Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God in the flesh with us. He talks about his name. His name means the one who has come to save. He saved. Jesus is the Savior. If we turn to John, the first part, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word there is is John's way of referring to Jesus Christ. In the beginning, the Word. So there at the beginning of all creation, we have Jesus, the Son of God, and all things are created through him. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we look at Jesus on trial in Matthew, and he sits in a very human court, very illegal human court in this case, the person that's on trial is the Son of God through whom the entirety of creation was made. If we go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This Jesus, this King Jesus who has come, that's what Matthew is all about. The King has come. This Jesus is going to be put on trial. And I hope there's something deep within you that sees the injustice of that and the foolishness of that. And what my prayer is as we leave this place, that we will identify those ways in our own lives each and every day that we do the exact same thing. We sit in judgment on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to look at several scenes in the trial and the arrest of Jesus. We're going to start in chapter 26, verse 31, and look at this scene. It's actually right before they go to the garden for prayer. Jesus has a conversation with Peter that we're going to pick up again later. Let me read this for us. You can follow along, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus told them, this very night you all will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said, the same. Peter makes a judgment here. He judges that Jesus is wrong about him. 
I think if we put ourselves in Peter's place, we can understand that. No way, Jesus, I will never fall away. But what he's saying is, Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus is trying to prepare Peter and the rest of the apostles. This night, it's the night of his arrest, is going to be very, very hard. This weekend, the weekend of his crucifixion, is going to be incredibly hard. And yet Peter says, Jesus, you're wrong about me. How often do we read truths in scripture and say, well, I'm not really that bad. That's not really, I would never do that. You might know a little bit of the rest of the story of Peter. We'll pick it up in a bit. But that's exactly what he did. He disowns Jesus. Jesus takes his disciples and they go to the garden called Gethsemane where he wants to spend some time in prayer. And it's here that the arrest will take place. Let's pick it up in verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and pray, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus has made it clear in the passages leading up to this, in all of the Gospels, he knows exactly what is going to happen. He knows what the next few hours of his life are going to hold. He knows the betrayal. He knows the injustice. He knows the pain and the agony of being put on the cross. He knows what he's going to go through. And he knows what his disciples are going to go through. And I think part of this, there's a prayer here for himself, but he also warns them, watch so that you don't fall into temptation. As he's facing the cross, he's still thinking of his disciples. He wants them to stay strong. He doesn't want them to fall into temptation. And yet what the apostles know is that they're tired. They just came from a feast. They shared the Passover feast together. It's getting late at night. They're ready for anything, right? We will never disown you, Jesus. Great, now pray. They're ready for anything except to just remain diligent when their Savior tells them, even if it doesn't make sense to them. And they fall asleep. I think they judge that there's nothing serious going on. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, Maybe they tried to stay awake, and they just couldn't, but they fall asleep. 
But what's going on with Jesus here? Verse 38 says Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The Greek words here are really strong. Completely overwhelmed. In absolute agony. His soul is ripping apart within him. John says that Jesus knows all that's going to happen to him. He knows the path forward and how he will be nailed to the cross. He knows how the nails will feel. He knows how the betrayal on the cross will feel. And he knows. And Matthew records, and as he's going to hang on the cross, in Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prays, if possible, may this cup pass from me. Now, the cup can mean all sorts of things. can just mean somebody say, some people say it's just what Jesus has to go through and the cross. But in Scripture, the cup is so often used of the wrath of God being poured out on others in judgment. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is using it as. He knows he is going to the cross to take the punishment, the wrath of God poured out that should be ours, and he's going to take it for us. And he's not saying, God, I don't want to do this. I I, I have second thoughts now. I just don't want to do this. What he's praying is, if at all possible, if there is any way that there is any other way to accomplish this, can we do that? Jesus is both God and man. And his human body and his human nature is going to go through inexpressible anguish and agony on the cross. I think there's a great example for us. Jesus expresses his desire in prayer. It's good to be honest with God. It's good to bring your desires to him. But we need to remember the second part of Jesus' prayer. This is essential. When we bring our desires to God, we need to follow up with, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's the prayer of submission. God, here's what I would like, but I would rather have what you want even more than what I may want in this moment. There is a real battle going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as their rabbi, their savior, their Lord, their king is agonizing in prayer, both for them and for himself, the disciples are asleep. It's interesting that when the battle is going on, they want to sleep. And yet in a moment, they want to raise arms and and a cry to battle. and And Jesus says, now is not the time. And so we come to the arrest of Jesus Christ in verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. 
With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. We talked about Judas a bit last week. Judas has judged that Jesus is not who he expected him to be. We're not really sure all that he expected. I think he expected Jesus to be this this leader that was going to raise up an army and overthrow the Romans and deliver the Jewish people from these Roman oppressors. And here he is giving in, giving up, it looks like. It looks like he's completely failed. Judas has had enough. The disciples judge that Jesus needs their protection. We better stand up for our rabbi. We better fight. I mean, they have seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, call out demons and send them off to their, their, their judgment and death. They have seen the power of Jesus at work. But in this moment, they think, oh, we've got to fight. We've got to defend him or all this is going to fall apart. What's so amazing in this passage is that these people did not arrest Jesus. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. The choice was his. He had all the power in the world to change this situation. He chose to allow this to happen. The fight that Jesus came for was not the fight for his comfort. It wasn't the fight for his freedom. It wasn't the fight to prove that he was right and these people were wrong. The fight that Jesus came for was the battle that was going to be won on the cross and in the empty tomb. And this was the path to get there. We're told that Peter is the one that cut off the ear of the servant. We're not told in Matthew, but we're told elsewhere that Jesus even heals this man in the midst of this chaos. But we have King Jesus being arrested by those he came to save. If we skip ahead, the next scene that we're going to look at is this trial. They arrest Jesus and they take him. It's very late at night now, possibly even the middle of the night. And they take them, take him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And he's brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling group of Jewish leadership. It was a religious body, but they had a lot of cultural and even some political authority over the Jewish people. If you know a little bit of the history, the Jewish people are occupied by the Romans at this time. So they have their culture, they have some of their own laws and their own way of doing things, but they're ruled by the Romans. And so here he's brought before these religious leaders. We'll pick it up in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. 
The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? He's brought to this house. It's the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. The way their houses, especially of, of someone of power or influence or wealth, it would have been a, an outer ring or square, more than likely, of rooms, living quarters, with an inner courtyard, a wide open area that was open to the sky and kind of a gate that would lead into that. So that's the setting here. They're in a home, but they've gathered there for the purpose of putting Jesus on trial as far as they can as Jewish religious leaders. They don't have the power to put him to death. Only the Romans can do that. And so they meet to decide, to figure out, how are we going to proceed? What can we get to take to the Roman authorities to make sure this man is put to death? But they've got to get the crowd on their side. Now, some of you, if you're familiar with the different Gospels, you might be aware there's a lot of confusion over who the high priest is. You'll read different accounts, and some say Annas is the high priest. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 6, Luke records that shortly after this, and during this time even, that the high priest is Annas. And yet Matthew here says Caiaphas. A little bit of background, because this is one of those things people use to say, see, the word of God is an error. It's not true. It has conflicts. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Okay, so they're family. According to Jewish religious law, a high priest served for the entirety of his life until he died. He was the high priest. The Romans didn't like Annas. I don't know why something happened. They didn't like him. So they came in and they made a proclamation. He is no longer the high priest. Caiaphas is put in as the high priest in his place. And so the Romans recognized Caiaphas as the high priest. The Jewish people, under their law, still recognized Annas as the high priest. They were in a very difficult setting that when they needed to accomplish things, they had to work through both of these guys. That's why there's confusion. It's very easy to explain. Matthew records Jesus' trial before Caiaphas. Other Gospels talk about a trial or or a discussion before Annas as well. So here we have this scene. It's late at night. It's dark. They didn't have a lot of sources of light. Few lamps, few fires are burning. The important people, the Sanhedrin and and Jesus on trial, they're right there in the middle of the courtyard. The, The servants are kind of staying around the outside. 
This is, according to Jewish law, an illegal trial. You could not put someone on trial at night. You could not put someone on trial during a feast. This is the feast of the Passover. It was illegal. It was wrong. And they knew it was wrong. And yet, they were in a hurry to get it done. Verses 59 and 60 talk about they were looking for false evidence and that many false witnesses come forward. D.A. Carson had a really good point here. He says it's not so much that they're going out and saying, will you lie? Great, you testify. Will you lie? Great, you testify. He said what it is is that they had already made up their mind what the end of this trial would be. Jesus would be found guilty, period. And they were simply listening until they heard the people, whether they were honest or not, that said what they already wanted to hear. And when they heard it, they said, that's it. Now we've got what we need. You know, this is so true today. So often people will only hear what they have already determined in advance the way it must be. And everything else gets dismissed. And this is the only thing we will listen to. In verses 63 to 64, Caiaphas puts Jesus under an oath. This is a legally binding oath. I charge you under oath by the living God. This is like hand on the Bible, you know, do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Jesus is now under oath. And if Jesus refuses to answer, he is breaking a legal oath. He had to answer the high priest. If he says, no, I'm not the Messiah, easy. He gets let off. No more suffering, no more pain. He gets let go and go on about his life. Just one major problem. He loses all influence with the people let alone the whole mission that he came to accomplish in the first place. If Jesus says that he is in fact the Messiah, then he is guilty and will be put to death. But here's the rub with that. The Messiah, in their way of thinking, would never have been arrested, would never have done this, and certainly wouldn't be put on a cross. So it would prove that he's not really the Messiah. They think they've got him. And Jesus says, you have said so. It's kind of like saying, you said it, not me. You've declared it. See, there's a problem that Jesus understands. They want to say, you're the Messiah or you're not the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know what you're talking about. When you think of the word Messiah, your definition is wrong. I haven't come to do what you think I should do or I shouldn't do. And he quotes two Old Testament passages, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, which emphasizes the absolute sovereignty of the Messiah. And Jesus says to them, you think you got me. You think you've got power over me to judge me. But the day is coming when you will see me at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and I will have absolute power and sovereignty over you. And I will put you on trial. There's a very stern warning in that, and yet in verses 67 to 68, they mock him. Remember everything I read about Jesus at the beginning? Perfect image of God. The Word made flesh, through whom all things were made. Look at what they're doing to him. They then, in chapter 27, verse 11, they bring him before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. He had absolute authority to sit, listen to this, and say, this is what's going to happen. He had the absolute authority to put Jesus on the cross. 
If he said so, that's what's going to happen. Look at verses 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, my understanding is that the way these Roman trials would would take place, just like you see here, the accusers would come and they would lay out their case. And the person, in this case Pilate, would make their decision largely based on how the defendant defended themselves. It's very different than our, our system today. If the person could defend themselves well and say, this is why I did it or this is why I didn't do it, then they would judge in their favor if they wanted to. What's amazing here is that Jesus is silent. This is his one opportunity to get out of this. Pilate cannot imagine somebody whose life is in the balance standing before him with the opportunity to argue for his own life who stays silent. He refuses to say anything. Verse 15, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate's in an actual difficult position here. A little bit of backstory that's not in scripture, but we know this from history. Pilate has recently gotten in trouble with the the Roman Caesar. He had been officially rebuked for something he did. Also, he had a a high-ranking friend that kind of looked out for him in the government and was sort of a benefactor, making sure that he could stay as this, this important position. That person had recently died. And so Pilate's in a very difficult position. The other difficult position he's in is being in authority over Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a hotbed of rebellion. The Roman Empire wanted peace at any cost, any price, no matter what. Keep the people in line and keep the taxes coming. And so what Pilate had to do is squash uprisings and rebellion. And here he has this crowd that is threatening to boil over. And this could get out of hand really, really fast. Now, along with that, he has his wife saying, this man is innocent, have nothing to do with him. 
And so he's processing, what do I do here? How do I get out of getting in more trouble? But how do I stop this crowd? And he came up with this idea. During the Passover, there was a tradition of the Romans choosing or bringing out some criminals and allowing the crowd to choose between them. And so he brings out these two, Barabbas and Jesus Christ. And he says, which one do you want? Now, we often use the term thief. We talk about the thieves on the cross that were crucified next to Jesus. That's not entirely accurate with the Greek. They, they didn't crucify thieves. They crucified rebels. These were people that were trying to start uprisings. And the Romans used the cross as a way of literally holding somebody up to say, this is what happens to anyone who crosses the Romans. This is what you will go through. Now, Barabbas is facing the cross. Jesus is facing the cross. And Pilate allows the people to choose, and they choose Barabbas. And then in verse 24, the man who has all the authority in this situation to make this decision according to the human way of thinking, he washes his hands of the whole situation and blames the Jesus or the Jewish people. He has a job to do, and he's too afraid to do it. He judges Jesus as innocent, but he's too afraid to do his job. And so he hands Jesus over to be crucified. The Jewish leaders judge Jesus as a threat to their authority. Pilate judges Jesus to be an inconvenience that just needs to be removed and disposed of. So here's the scenes, the arrest... And, and now the trial at Caiaphas's house and then the trial before Pilate. But there's a few other personal scenes I want us to look at. Three key people that we need to look at to truly understand the heart of what's going on here. I want to start with Judas. Turn back to chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. We talked about Judas when we looked at the Last Supper and how he went out to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I'm not going to go over that again. But here we are told, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. Now, let me just stop for a second. That's actually a blatant lie. It's a lot to them. Jewish law required that if they found out that someone they had condemned was actually innocent, they had to act. And they choose not to. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. Isn't it interesting how people pick and choose what laws to abide by when it's convenient for them? That's, that's what self-righteousness does to you. I will ignore this. Oh, but look how great I am in accomplishing this. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. 
They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Judas regrets his decision. Judas is such a tragic character. Someone who is just completely wrong in his judgment of Jesus and yet completely self-assured that he was absolutely right in what he was doing. And when he does it, he realizes, I am wrong. I've often wondered, would it have been possible for Judas to truly repent at that moment? He knows he's wrong. See, knowing you're wrong is not repentance. That's not enough. That's the first part. But there's no inkling that he came back, that he said, Lord, please forgive me. There's none of that. His heart was so hardened that the only way out he saw was to take his own life. What an absolute tragedy. He judges that he is unable to be saved. Matthew puts this account right next to another very personal account, which is... Peter. If we pick it up in verse 69, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, this is during the trial at Caiaphas's house, and a servant girl came to him, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Now, this is like a promise. Again, it's sort of like a legal oath, but it's not really a legal setting. I I swear on the grave of my mother. I swear by the temple or the altar. They had all these oaths they would take. So he's, he's making a very firm promise. I don't know Jesus, which, of course, we know is a lie. He's lying and disowning his Savior. After a little while, surely uh, you were with, uh, after a little while, though, standing there, went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. He was from the north. They had kind of a little more of a backwater accent, I guess, if we could say that. It was a little obvious from now that they're in Jerusalem that he didn't come from there. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Now, This is not swearing in the terms of, this is not like cuss words that he's using here. This is calling down curses. Again, an oath is, I promise you on the temple that what I'm saying is true. A curse is, if what I'm saying is not true, may I be put to death. I will call down a curse upon myself. That's like the next level of trying to prove himself. He went from an oath to now a curse. And of course, it's still a lie. And immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter is one of 12 apostles. It can be argued, I think, very clearly from Scripture that he was the leader of of the 12 apostles. He was the main representative, the main spokesperson. He was part of Jesus's inner three group of friends that went with him to spectacular, amazing things where they learned things about Jesus that nobody else did. He was one of Jesus's closest friends and most fervent disciples. 
John tells us that it was Peter who cut off the ear of someone when they arrested Jesus in the garden. I got this, Jesus. I'll stand up for you and rescue you. He pulls out a sword, lops off the ear. And yet here Peter is absolutely terrified. To the point where he will call down curses upon himself, saying, I don't even know that man. Hours earlier, he was willing to die. Now he's willing to disown his Savior. Peter judges in this moment, I think, that Jesus has let him down. And he is willing to make a choice to disown Jesus to avoid any other public scrutiny or personal backlash against himself. Peter is afraid. I think we do this all the time. I think we get in those moments that our our world has been shaken, the rug has been pulled out from under us. Jesus, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. And it's so easy in those moments, even just for a brief moment, to let go of that hold of faith on Jesus Christ. But there's one more person I want to look at. It's a person that kind of is in the background of this whole thing. And that's Barabbas. Matthew 27 tells us that Pilate gave the crowd an option to release Barabbas or to release Jesus. We're also told that Jesus will be crucified between two other criminals. Again, according to my understanding, these were rebels leading a rebellion. We're told that that's who Barabbas was. It's quite possible Barabbas was caught with these two other men, put on trial, judged guilty, and determined that they were going to the crosses. There were three crosses, three men found guilty. Whose cross was Jesus put on? Barabbas. That was literally his cross. He deserved to be put there. And Jesus took his place. Barabbas was a rebel against the Roman authorities. Granted, horrible, corrupt authorities who did unspeakable, horrible things. We are all, according to scriptures, rebels. Not against earthly authorities, But against the king of kings and the God of this universe, our creator and our savior, we have rebelled against him. We, like Barabbas, deserve to die. We, like Barabbas, should look at the cross and say, that should be me. I deserve that. We, like Barabbas, should look at the cross with Jesus Christ on it. And say, he took my place. He died in my place. I wonder what Barabbas did after this. I wonder how his life was changed. Scripture doesn't record it. But I wonder how we'll answer that in our own lives. Are we going to sit there and just put Jesus on trial in our own hearts and our own minds? Well, is he doing what I want or is he not? Can we just stop and step back and say, that was my cross and he took my place. I will follow him and I will trust him. I would hope that Barabbas was a changed man. 
I know that trusting in Jesus and believing that he died in our place on the cross changes us. Friends, we put Jesus on trial constantly, moment by moment, every day in our lives, in big ways at times, but often in very small ways. I want to do this. I know he says this, but I want to do this instead. What's your judgment of Jesus Christ? Is he an inconvenient aspect of your life? Maybe a threat to your power and authority? Is he someone brings fear to your life because you're afraid of what others will think of you because of Jesus? Scripture is abundantly clear that Jesus is our king and he is our savior. And like Barabbas, it should have been us on the cross. It should have been us, but Jesus took our place. That needs to change everything about how we see Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we looked at a lot of your word this morning. God, I pray that we would be challenged and changed by the power of your word at work, that we would read these things and understand they actually and literally happened, and that we would also apply them to ourselves and ask ourselves how we do the same things. And Father, may we be astonished at the powerful truth that your Son willingly took our place on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And Father, as we prepare for next week to look at the powerful passage of Jesus on the cross and the power of his resurrection, I pray that we would remember it should have been us. God, give us faith to follow. As we see people like Peter who struggled even to the point of disowning, and yet we know from the rest of Scripture, he was forgiven. He was restored. And I believe he is with you eternally and forever. God, that's the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. May we accept that for ourselves. May we trust in you and follow you every day of our lives. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.